I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm Scott Herzog. I'm David Moulton. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And uh, we have the distinct pleasure tonight to have with us one of the authors that is bringing the world of Dune alive to us. And, you know, so far on this podcast, we've mostly read his books, his and uh, Kevin Janderson's books. So Brian Herbert is with us. He's known for his collaborations with the, as I mentioned, co-author Kevin Janderson, with whom he has written multiple prequels to Frank Herbert uh, and his, land, his landmark 1965 science fiction novel, Dune, all of which have made the New York Times bestsellers list. His latest book, The Little Green Book of Chairman Rama, just came out here in July. Brian, welcome to the Dune Saga podcast. Thank you, Scott and Jim. I, I enjoy being here. Yeah. And David. <laughs> David, yeah. Just trout in there at the end. Yeah, just get that. <laughs> I just want to see if David would yell at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, 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 right. Yeah, just, just whenever you're addressing us, just forget to mention David. See if he notices. He, he's, he's, he, he's working on a lack of sleep right now, so he may, he may be just like, yeah, whatever. But or I could just cry myself. Yeah, asleep yeah, later or just randomly call him different characters from Dune, and we'll see if he notices. <laughs> Okay. No, no. Um, go ahead, David. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get uh, too into anything too deep, could you tell tell us a little bit about your your history as a as a writer? I mean, I know that you you grew up in a household where your father was and mother and and mother were both were both writers. Uh, but was this something that came naturally to you, or that you found um, kind of calling for later in life? Well, um, I was in my late twenties working as um, for an insurance company to to pay bills. Um, my dad didn't always have a regular job. He um, he worked as a newspaper man and as a, a speech party a speech writer for the Republican Party, but mostly my mom was the regular breadwinner. But um, when I was in my late twenties, my wife noticed my wife Jan noticed I, I wrote pretty good complaint letters for Faldi Products, and I would write eight or ten page letters, and I would. Uh, defeat the attorneys of these corporations and um, just with, with my complaint letters. And so she said, you write pretty good letters, so why don't you go ask your dad uh, for some help with creative writing? And my dad and I had not always gotten along, um, but when I was in my 20s, we were just starting to get along, and um, ultimately we actually became best friends as adults. But but at this point, we were we were just kind of developing a new relationship as adults where we hadn't gotten along earlier. And I, I hesitated, but then I did go to my dad, and, and he did start to help me with some of my early stories. Um, I didn't read science fiction. Um, I did listen to my dad 
reading his stories to my mother and my mother giving him feedback and recommendations. But because I didn't do fiction, my first novel that I that I attempted, I, I I showed it to Dad, and then Dad said, "Have you got such and such?" And I don't want to tell you what it, what it was, but it was too much like some other really famous books. So I had a good idea, but I was like twenty or thirty years behind the times. So then I wrote a second novel, and um, this time my story, my agent told me my story was too close to something that was published around me too. So then I went to it. Then I took that second novel and completely reworked it, uh, and it became Sydney's Comet, published in 1983, which is about a society of overconsumption, um, and there's uh, it, it's sort of a Brave New World type society. Um, you can pick your the, the eye color of your children and all the characteristics you want in, in your children, and um, and al- also there's too much garbage. On the planet, and it's just too many products and too much garbage. So everything is catapulted that they don't want. It's catapulted into deep space, and it's all coming back as this flaming garbage comet that you know some power in space has sent back. Um, and so it was kind of my first ecological novel, really, because you don't want to litter the cosmos. Um, I, I did get one review on the book. Uh, Publishers Weekly said I had kind of a dark wit. They liked the book, and, and uh, they. That I was dark, <laughs> so it, it was a satire. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> awesome. Would you say that that these like deep ecological themes are at the core of most of your writing? I keep coming back to them. Um, my time web series, starting uh, just a few years ago, is about a galaxy that's an ecosystem. So I enlarged the, the concept of an ecosystem to encompass an entire galaxy. And it's all connected by this ethereal web called time web, and it's all crumbling, it's all falling. There's this huge galactic scale ecological disaster occurring, and my hero is a, a galactic ecologist who needs to solve solve problem. And so, um, and then with Little Green Book, which I think you want to go into that later, but that's uh, the, uh, the far left. Uh, say out of Berkeley in the 1960s, taking over North and South America and creating a green utopia. Um, then I have a novel, Ocean, in which the creatures of the ocean declare civilization for the, the pollution and bad things we've done to it. So, yeah, I, I'm turning to that theme. But if you look at um, the Stolen Gospels, that is um, postulating that Jesus had 12 female apostles in addition to 12 male apostles and the female apostles back to life and dictating uh, a new holy women's Bible with passages that were omitted from the early Bible by church authorities. And it's based on truth because there were actual um, gospel that were deleted and they were favorable to women. They were um, That novel came out just not... Five or six years ago, um, I think um, it's Wordfire Press published it uh, in 2011. Actually, and then in 1990, I had a, uh, another religious novel called The Race for God, in which God uh, announces where He is out in the universe, and then there's a big race on for all the major religions to get there first, but they're killing each other to get there. So that again is satirical. It also that book was full of information about uh, comparative religion and about the folly of arguing over 
over the small matters when there were so many matters, so many items that um, people should agree on. I mean, for example, all the major religions have uh, a form of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. So why not start with the things they agree on instead of all these petty differences? Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, you see, and you see some of that even working its way into, you know, I was thinking of the Butler and Jihad books, and you see the religious fervor and people just uh, uh, killing. They work their way into the in the Dune saga as well, and uh, certainly see that. Well, absolutely, yeah. If you look at the novel Dune, Dad's got, you know, all the things we talk about: religion, uh, ecology, uh, politics. He's got strong women, um, and a lot more. So yeah, yeah he had all these good, wonderful layers in Dune um, that he was able to, to fold into the into the story and hmm. still make it a great adventure story. Yeah, yeah. How much did uh, did uh, did your dad's uh, love of the ecology or view in the ecology influence you? I think it was mostly subconscious. Um, I, I never intended to be a writer. And when I started writing, I actually, before the Sydney's Comet novel I told you about, I published two humor books. Um classic comeback selection of great comeback lines from history and another one incredible insurance claims because i was in the insurance business so there was all these funny claims <laughs> but i never intended uh, to even be a writer and so uh but being around dad and um actually spend i spent five years uh working on dreamer of dune and uh, so and and in doing that i read every book he wrote every short story i went back and interviewed people from his childhood um and of course the, the reason Dune initially became such a huge hit was the the environmental story in it. So uh, it was published in magazine form in analog in 1963 and then revised a little bit. And in book form in 65, it was published. But by 1970, there had been kind of a slow groundswell. There were only 2,200 books initially published, and so there weren't that many out there. But by 1970, word started to get around about Frank Herbert. And he spoke at the first Earth Day um, in Philadelphia in 1970. Uh, he spoke to 30,000 people. And one of the things he said to them was, and I'll paraphrase here, um, he said, I don't want to be in a position of having to tell my grandchildren there's no more Earth left for you. We used it all up. Um, so he was he was really into the environmental movement and anti-war movement, too. I mean, what, what war is a huge... Uh, uh, causes a lot of damage to the environment in addition to what it does to people. Hmm. Hmm. Now, um, you obviously became aware of this, uh, especially the ecological impact as you, you know, read your father's work. Uh, Jim, do you want to ask this question we have here for, uh, for Brian? So while you were young, were you aware of the universe that, uh, your father was creating and did he talk with you about it? at all, and did you play any part in its creation? I helped write Dune out of Dad's way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's not really an exaggeration. I mean, um, now, when I got home from school, the house had to be very quiet because he was creating this great work, which that, that novel will be read for 500 years or more. I mean, it, it, it's a great work, and um, he didn't like to interrupt he didn't like any noise in the house. And so I, I definitely did did try to be quiet and try to stay out of his way. Um, and um, I, I listened to him reading passages from Dune to my mother. Um, I remember the passage where, where Paul is, is, is given this uh, 
test by by a reverend mother when, when Paul's very young. And I remember my mother commenting on on the passages Dad had read. Um, so th- there were little bits and pieces of um, of the stories, and and Dad would always give me a copy of each book, and he'd he'd make it out to number one, son. So even though it was getting long, um, he had he had hopes for her a relationship. He, he called me number one, son, sort of in a Chinese fashion. Um, and if and if you look at Dune. Um, there's hopes in, in there that Duke Leto had for his son Paul. And so I, I see my dad in Duke Leto. I'm not Paul, but I, I definitely see my uh, characteristics of my the noble hero. Um, and in my mother, uh, she's basically Lady Jessica, very, very elegant. So even when we were poor, um, my mother was still a very, very elegant lady, was, was very, uh, were very refined. And, and she was as intelligent as my father. In, in her own way, so um, I was immersed in 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 everything to do with Frank Herbert, whether it was uh, him being a speechwriter or us living in a Mexican village, um, and him giving advice to nuns with the pollination of of trees, <laughs> which which amused my mother because he was talking about sexual things to nuns. Um, <laughs> dad, he, he was a, he was a man who knew everything about. Virtually like that you could come up with. He could talk to uh, a blue-collar person, or he could talk, you know, to the the most erudite uh, Harvard graduate, um, and up from there. And so he he had a wide range, and he also had the talent of making each person he spoke to think that they were the most important person in the world. So they they got his attention. So he was um, remarkable in that he knew so much, um, and also that he could. Um, he could speak to so many different type of people. Um, he once told me that he couldn't read the pages of an encyclopedia or any kind of reference book that he'd be looking something up in because he'd want to look at the opposite page and see what was on there. So he was he was absorbing information like a sponge. Um, and so I have all these all these memories of, of things that he said to me and all this advice that he would give me when I was growing up, and I would remember it. And it wasn't until later that I, I really realized, you know, what he meant by it. For example, he told me when I was 10 or 11 years old, he said that everyone looks at the world through filters. And um, he said we're filtering things out. And so I, I saw that later as, as an adult. I, you start talking to somebody that has, it could be a religious argument. They don't, they don't want to hear anything that disagrees with the point of view they already have. Um, and I also noticed it's true um, of politics and um, the green movement. I mean, people, even the people that are so um, idealistic uh, about the environment, they don't want to hear opposite uh, information. Uh, and it's true of the other side too. Uh, the, the right wing, they they don't want to hear the the other side. So we're we're all we all have these filters. And I think to a certain extent we need these filters or we go completely crazy. You know, you have to filter some things out. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's, I can't remember if it's Heretics of Dune or Chapter House, but one of the, I believe in the fours, your father mentions that he's not trying to create a religion or a movement. Uh, was there any way that, that you saw this uh, and people picking up on that and, and that coming back. like, the, and Did you experience the reasons for him to feel the need to spell that out at the beginning of the book? Well, 
Um, he was he was very upset by uh, what happened at Jonestown and the Jim Jones movement, and um, sometimes he would quip um, that he was not trying to create another Jonestown in all this stuff, but he, he said that he didn't want to grow, and um, I think that's true. I, I don't think he felt comfortable being revered in that fashion. Um, he, he liked being considered intelligent, and, and if he was ever in a gathering, he was the most intelligent person there by far, and he was the most interesting and the best speaker, so everybody gravitated around him, and they would listen to Frank Herbert. But he wasn't comfortable with the idea that, that he was a religious leader or formed a new religion at all. Hmm. Hmm. Well, moving into some of the uh, the Dune books, as you as you and uh, Kevin J. Anderson, I mean, I've heard the story. I, there was an interview in one of the Audible books I'd listened to uh, with the two of you. I'd read something that how Kevin J. Anderson kind of came on board, but. As you begin to approach, you know, tackling your father's world, uh, I mean, was that was that daunting at all as you looked at it? I mean, I think for someone when you look at Frank's work, I mean, or your dad's work, uh, that would seem like a huge thing to kind of tackle, <laughs> to me at least. Well, yeah, it's um, <clears throat> when I think back on when I met Kevin in 1997. I mean, it seems pretty scary, but um, at the time. I, I honestly was not daunted. I, I had done the five years of research on Dreamer of Dune, um, and I knew Frank Kerber. And then beyond that, when I first started talking to Kevin, I went through all six uh, Dune books that Dad wrote, and I, I made a concordance. So I have a 600-page single concordance showing you know what Shukleo's eye color was, uh, all his characteristics that Frank Herbert wrote, same with Lady Jessica, same with, with um, Duncan Idaho, all the other characters. And, and I have a history of the Benny Gesserit, the Mentats, all that stuff is in this huge concordance. And that shows the page number, um, whether it's hardcover, paperback, or whatever. I have the page references in there. Um, so I had that research that Kevin and I then could use as our, uh, our reference tool, in addition to what we both knew. So... I felt like I, I was ready for this. Uh, I also, I also knew. Well, first of all, when when Dad wrote Chapter House Dune, he wrote this beautiful tribute to my mother at the end of it. It's a three-page tribute uh, at the end of the book, and it talks about their life together and um, how they were a, a writing team and how uh, Beverly Herbert, my mother, had actually named uh, Chapter House Dune um, and how she died while he was writing it. And since my mother and father were a writing team, I'll just back up quickly and say back in the 1950s, my mom uh, uh, quit her creative writing uh, attempts in order to support our family. Um, and she did jobs at Macy's and various department stores writing the ads. Um, uh, since she had, had done that uh, for our family, um, and, and, and then later my father, in a heroic fashion, uh, my mother got terminal lung cancer in 1974. Um, Dad basically set everything aside as and, and made her his priority. So he built her this incredible house in Hawaii on the island of Maui where she could breathe easier with her lung cancer caused by cigarettes. 
Um, and um, he did a lot of other things for her. He, he made every possible medical treatment he could for her. And it was during that time that he and I became really close when I saw the things that he was doing for my mother because she had sacrificed herself for him. And then later he sacrificed himself for her. Um, and then she died in Hawaii uh, while Dad was writing Chapter House Dune. And so when I read that tribute to my at the end of Chapter House Dune, I thought um, I, I should never write another another Dune story. And I told people for years exactly that that that's where it should end. And emotionally, I felt that it should end. But I was talking with Kevin, and um, Kevin reminded me that. Uh, Chapter House Dune had been left on a cliffhanger, um, and I knew uh, that before Dad died, he had copies of Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, the fifth and sixth books, and he was using a yellow highlighter, um, and that he was preparing to write a Dune novel that he called Dune 7, which would have been his seventh Dune novel. So I knew there were untold Dune stories, um, and that was intellectually, I knew that, but emotionally, I, I still felt that, that it should end with their writing team, that my mother and father were. But I, I became convinced that there were still stories that to be told, and um, in talking to some fans, I began to realize that they wanted to hear those stories. Um, and so Kevin and I set about uh, outlining it, and we, we came up with a 140-page uh, book proposal um, that we sent in to New York, uh, and that was for House Dune House Atreides, Dune House Harkonnen, and Dune House Carino. And from what I've heard, it's the longest book proposal ever sent to New York that was actually read. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, the minute Kevin and I started talking on the phone, our wives noticed, uh, we talked on the phone before we actually met, our wives noticed that we, we went into a, a different a different zone and we were talking in this language that we both knew and we would come up with very similar ideas for plots. Um, so it was like taking this huge journey uh, and we both had a very similar vision of where we were going. Um, and we like to quip that, you know, Frank Herbert was this incredible genius and neither Kevin and I have, have ever claimed that, that we're that smart. So basically, jumps into one of Frank Herbert's shoes, and I jump into the other one. It takes two of us. But um, we, we take it seriously. And so each each book that we do goes through several drafts, and, um, and we try very hard to replicate what we think Dad would have envisioned. And sometimes we have come up with ideas that we later found in Frank Herbert's notes uh, for an unpublished book, so so we're, mm-hmm. we're definitely on the right track. And, and we've um, Kevin did, I think, told me that he felt daunted by it, and um, I should have been daunted. But <laughs> I'd done my homework, right? Um, so I, I think I think it was the time. It was time to do it. Yeah, very good, Jim. Do you want to ask the question from Ryan White? Just because this kind of plays in here. Sure. Uh, Ryan wants to know how much material did your father leave behind? regarding other possible Dune books, and how detailed was that material? We found um, a lot of pages of random Dune notes um, in which they weren't really um, later. They weren't really story outlines or anything like that, and these were all in boxes in, in my storage area. 
we found that, dug it out, organized it, we each got copies of it. Um, mostly we've used those notes for epigraphs that go at the beginning of chapters, but most of the epigraphs that you see at the beginning of chapters, actually Kevin and I have completely written those, but there's some of them that were uh, Frank Herbert's ep- epigraph ideas or or we obviously we were inspired by Frank Herbert. And we did find in all those notes, we found one complete chapter um, that we had to revise a little bit, and it was the meeting of Duke Leto and Lady Jessica. So we put that into our, our first trilogy of novels and sanded it off a little bit on each end to make it make it fit into our novel. Um, and then beyond that, separately, um, I started talking to Kevin in January of 1997 on the phone, and we met in May of 1997 when he flew to Seattle. Uh, and then we started brainstorming. Well, a couple of weeks after uh, Kevin returned home, I received a call from an estate attorney. His name is Walt Tabor in Seattle, and he was handling... Uh, various estate matters for my mother and father. So this is 1997, and my mother had died in 1984, and my dad in 1986. And Walt said to me, kind of matter-of-factly, because he thought I already knew about it, he said, oh, and Brian, what do you want to do with these two safety deposit boxes um, at Seattle First National Bank in Bellevue? And that's now owned by Bank of America. But but I, I, was, I said, well, I don't know anything about them. And so... I went over there with an attorney named Jan Cunningham, who was uh, an estate attorney that was involved in this, and we went over and they had to actually uh, physically break open the boxes because we didn't have keys to them. Now, this is 11 years after Frank Herbert died, and we opened up those two safety deposit boxes, and Jan Cunningham and I are going through them, and she's got this big yellow legal pad, and she's writing things down, and... um, there were there were songs in there that Dad had written. There were recipes. Um, there were letters, um, and there were 30 pages of notes that were marked Dune Seven. Um, and in addition to those printed 30 pages, we found two old style, I think they were candy type, uh, floppy disks. And on them, in Dad's writing, it says Dune Seven. And so. I thought, oh, this is really something. And so <laughs> I, I, I took those two discs to a man who used to work for the National Security Agency. I know this this all sounds too good to be true. I said I should find an NSA guy, but I did. And he, and, and he dug into those old uh, Radio Shack floppy discs and compared them with the 30 pages of printouts that I had. And he said, this is everything that's, that's on those discs or has ever been on those discs. So... That was the 30 pages that we had. And, uh, in fact, some fans didn't believe that that ever existed. So at one point we we, we put up a floppy disk with Frank Herbert's handwriting on it that says Dune 7 Notes on it. <laughs> but uh, but that, that was a uh, – in 30 pages, you, you can't really have that much detail about what goes into it. So there's there's character descriptions in there, and there's an, an overall plot – of, of, of where he wanted the whole thing to go. And so um, that's where Kevin and I started with. And then we also, obviously, we reread uh, Heretics and Chapter House, so we knew what the cliffhanger was. And, and, then in, and then we wrote Dune 7 in two novels. It's Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune. So the 30 pages was expanded into um, probably 11 or 1,200 pages in, in novel form. 
Wow. So, so when we when we, when people talk about Dune Seven and they're waiting for it, really, it's these two books that have come out that really are what Frank Herbert would have called Dude Seven. Right. He, he this is what he envisioned. Um, and this this is the overall plot that that he saw. Um, and of course, we you know we wrote it, so there, there's obviously things we had to intuit and figure out. But that was the same as we did when we wrote the Butlerian Jihad. In the Butlerian Jihad, we we had his notes in the appendix to Dune about the Jihad and what happened in those times, and, and some of the names are here and there that we could we could fit in. So so we we have Frank Herbert's overall vision for the Butlerian Jihad and for Dune Seven, and the best thing would be if Frank Herbert had written. Uh, the Butler and Jihad trilogy and Dune Seven, if he'd written them himself, but we did the second best thing, I think. <laughs> well, uh, we certainly, uh, we certainly. I've not read the uh, the um, the Sandworms and the Heretics yet, but we'll, we'll get, get we'll get there. But I have yeah. read the Butler and Jihad and certainly enjoyed those stories. And yeah, well, I think we have nineteen nineteen books counting Road to Dune, which. As a, an alternate Dune novel in it called Spice Planet, and then the 20th Dune novel will be Navigators of Dune. Now, so, yeah. uh, you have a, a, like four million words to read, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do, and, uh, and we're taking it one book a month, basically, with some breaks in there for the movies and yeah. miniseries. So. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, I did want to talk, uh, since we talked a little bit about the order and what you just said, uh, can you talk a little bit about the order in which the books have been published? It, it seems to jump around a bit. Why not in chronological order for you? Yeah. Um, well, sure. In retrospect, I, I think we would have changed how we did some of the some of the ordering. Um, how I think the place we started uh, with Concentrate is thirty five years before the events in Dune started. I think that was a really, really good place to start because. We had some of the main characters that were in Dune at a younger age, um, showing how they developed. And when we wrote that trilogy, it actually got people interested in Dune again. And for a time, the sales of Dune filled, um, and they're still up. So, you know, and, and, and bad reviews were mentioned. Sure, we've gotten occasional bad reviews. It's 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 been mostly good, but even if we wrote a book that's not as good as Dune. Uh, <laughs> at least people, at least people are reading Dune, um, and I. It's kind of amusing because I, I believe that one of Dad's reviews for his own sequels, the he, the reviewer said this is good, but it's not as good as Dune. Well, <laughs> well, what is? I mean, I mean, what is as good as Dune? So, I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, all we can do is, is keep up the standard as high as we can. And and if that sends people back to read Dune, great, because that that is the flagship of of it all. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, uh, one of the things we do during our bad review se- section is I I try and find bad reviews that aren't just attacks on different of you guys being new authors and com- just comparing you to your your father. I feel that that's um. You mean like personal personal attacks? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I go to the so I purposely go to the um, very low starred ratings just to just to get like the extreme because obviously we're, the three of us are fans or we wouldn't be doing this this show. <laughs> so yeah. to kind of keep ourselves balanced, we want to look at other other people's points of view, and um, even right. so, like you have to filter out the just like uh, people who don't give it a chance just because it's not 
frank and, yeah, I know. and it's it you know it, i'm like you got to give it a chance uh for what it is I, I think that it's 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 great work um it's very different to read it chronologically i think that it adds a lot when we got to dune one of our one of our um listeners wrote us in and they they were saying how uh how could you do this cuz it makes it sound like uh one of the, some of the stuff we were doing is comparing the story uh, back to the prelude to Dune stuff and, and saying, you know, some of the things that we were hoping for weren't there and such. And he was like, how can you take that and compare it back and make, make it sound like it's not standing up to the prequels? And, uh, it was a great discussion that we had with him because, uh, for us, we, we're kind of trying to look at the thing as a whole picture, you know? And, mm-hmm. and when you do that, even though it's different authors, when you get to a book, it, it, I mean, obviously Dune's the, the beginning and, and, and the core, but, but when you read it like this, there's still kind of stuff that you're like, oh, I don't know. And surprisingly, a lot of that stuff was addressed in, in Paul of Dune. So yeah. specifically, um, the contradictions with Irland's writing. Yeah. I think too, the, uh, one of, you know, the characters, I mean, we, we Butler and Jihad in the house books, you kind of fall in love with a certain way a character's presented. And then uh, a different writer just has a little bit of a different flair on it. So when we got to your father's book, the way you were describing Jessica or Duke later was just slightly different. I mean, mm-hmm. just a little bit, just in the, in the emotional intent. So. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. Uh, except for the scene where they met, uh, Frank Herbert actually wrote that one. Yeah, oh, that's wow. true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. You, and, and I, I don't want to give a spoiler, but one of those two holds a knife uh, to the neck of the other one. Yeah. <laughs> and Frank Herbert, that was Frank Herbert that wrote that. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, very good. Well, that's good to know. So, <laughs> uh, well, you know, be, speaking of being fair and bad reviews and it's an interesting subject. Um, but um, before we wrote a single word, um, and when word got out in 1998, I believe, or 1999, that we were going to write some Dune stories, um, I think a lot of, of Dad's fans um, were very concerned, and I, and I think I think rightfully so. Um, and um, I I was very concerned when the fans lined up uh, at Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking to see if they had tomatoes in their hands. <laughs> um, and uh, all we had at that time, this was July of 1999, we had a chat book, which, which is one chapter from Dune House Atreides. And it's over of House Atreides, uh, the same, it came out later in the novel. And it was, was chapter one. But uh, the first person in line came up to me and he said, I want to thank you, Mr. Herbert, for continuing the series. And it went on like that. And um, and, and sure, there there are dissenters, uh, but that's that's been the message we <clears throat> we've mostly gotten, whether we go out and talk to people or whether we get fan letters. And um, for for the for the readers of Frank Herbert that have um, have their own image of of where things should have gone with the series, um, and I'm talking about the real um, direct readers. Um, who um, are very concerned about detail and, and maintaining the quality. Um, I'm always thinking about those people when I'm writing these novels, and I want I want to get their approval. And if if we don't quite make it, at least we've had them in mind, and, right. and we tried. Yeah. Um, it's not like we're ignoring Frank Herbert's original fans. Um, we have picked up a lot of um, a lot of new fans, um, uh, young men in the age group of say 15 actually up to up to 45 we've, we've picked up a lot in demographic so they might tend to be be more forgiving than the ones that originally grew up with frank herbert 
Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. One of our listeners wrote in and said, and he's, his name is Irish Pino. I don't know if this is his real name, but he just said, hello from Ireland, Brian, and thank you for the expanded Dune universe. And no doubt your father would be very proud. So that's a, that's the sentiment that a lot of our listeners who are on this journey with us kind of carry with them. So I would agree that the overall well, thank sentiment you. is... Thank you very much. I'm also from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yours and Kevin's stories are so detailed, while the original Dune series is not quite as detailed. Is uh, is this a result uh, as a result of questions that you you yourself had when you read Dune? Um, no, um, <clears throat> there's a definite stylistic uh, change that you that that I can describe in in the series. Um, Dune itself is has been called a polyphonic novel. It's it's multi-layered, and so it's got religion, a layer of religion and politics and philosophy, um, and ecology and history and all these other things that are in there. It's also beautifully written, po- poetically written. So there are five or six major layers to Dune, um, and um, it's also a heroic uh, story. Apollo Atreides, which is very much like an ancient hero myth. Um, in fact, some of the younger readers that, that read Dune, um, they may not pick up on all the nuances of politics and religion and the warnings um, against uh, charismatic leaders and all that stuff, but they'll still read it as this, as this great adventure story. So Frank Herbert was able to have this hero, Apollo Atreides, who is very familiar, in a sense, in our subconscious in that Paul is like other heroes throughout history. He has an unusual birth, for one thing. Uh, there's an attempt on his life when he's young. Uh, he marries the king's daughter, the emperor's daughter, at the end. And so there's all these data points that um, an author named Lord Raglan wrote about, I think it was 1936, in the book The Hero. And Paul Atreides hits on like 20 of those common features. And so, and then Dad, of course, had Dragon uh, guarding the, the treasure chest of, from, from Beowulf. Well, that's the, the giant sandworm guarding its territory of spice. And so you've got all this subconscious mythological stuff in there. Um, and Dune is this great adventure story. And Dad said, well, if you want to have a lot of messages in, in books and and you know that I've got some messages in a lot of my solo novels. He said you have to entertain people first and then put the message in there. Um, so Dune had had it all. It had ev- everything that that I could I could possibly want in a novel. And, and, and as an example of how to write a novel, um, when Dad went to Dune Messiah, he decided to go to the dark side of Paul Atreides. And so by the time Dune Messiah begins. Billions of people have been killed in Paul's name. There's this power structure under him. Um, and it's not really the, the golden image that we had at the end of Dune of Paul Atreides. And so that's why uh, Dad did spent years giving interviews to explain why he went to the dark side with Dune Messiah. Dune Messiah is a much smaller novel than, than Dune. And then when he went to Children of Dune, He's back to a more <clears throat> upbeat adventure story that, that really rolls along. And then when you get to uh, God Emperor of Dune, um, Heretics of Dune, and Tucker House of Dune, 
I think there's a, a radical change in style. Um, God Emperor of Dune begins in this great chase, and it ends in this, this great scene of the bridge going down and the big sandworm on it and everything. So it has these two huge dramatic scenes. But in between, there's a lot of um, internal dialogue, uh, a lot of the character Leto uh, giving philosophy about politics and religion. I mean, really cool, important stuff that Frank Herbert was saying. And he set it all up. He he set it up with with Dune and Dune was and Children of Dune, so he could have a character that that would say those things and pontificate. And then when you get to Heretics of Dune and Chapter House Dune, it's kind of similar in in style in a sense in that some of the big events in in the, in those two novels occur in the background, such as the destruction of, of Dune. Um, and in fact, when I first started working with Kevin, Kevin said, "Oh, we can't <clears throat> we can't use Dune; it's been destroyed." And I said, "No, I did this concordance, Kevin, and it's a charred ball. We can still figure something out." <laughs> so, <laughs> but but Dad would would have things in the background. He had these characters talking about really really important things, and and he was really going into the layers that he had set up in Dune. Well, when we started publishing novels in the Dune series in 1999. We couldn't go with a God Emperor style or Heretics or Chapter House. We had to go with more of an adventure story such as you saw in Dune or in Children of Dune in particular. So we have a lot of detail, a lot of background information because it's such a huge universe. Uh, but we do try, we, we have a different style there. And, and we're, we're, we're thinking about Dune and, and Children of Dune to, to a large extent when we, when we do that. And, and Dune Messiah, too. There's some big things happening in Dune Messiah. So um, it, it, it is a, a, a different way we're doing it, but um, we have to have some backstory in there, some detail, to, to because each novel, each, it's, each novel that a person picks up has to stand on its own. Mm-hmm. So there's going to have to be some backstory in each novel, but we don't want to... We don't want to slow it down. It has to has to be the right information that we put in there for detail. Hmm. You're talking a lot about uh, these deep details and stuff. I want to take a moment to uh, address something that we have in front of us that we've been told is kind of rare, um, and that is the Dune Encyclopedia. Uh, mm-hmm. What? Uh, when? When was this officially considered no longer canon? Because right on the cover it says. Of uh, authorized guide and companion to you know Frank Herbert's masterpiece. Um, well, um, I think um, I think the only thing uh, Frank Herbert saw it, and I think Frank Herbert himself said it was not canon. Okay, all right. Um, so I mean, he he's the one that that said that, and I think I think he actually said it in in the book. I think he's he's got some comments that uh, they're on the cover or what. But um, so and Willis McNelly. Uh, in 1999, Willis McNelly, Kevin and I, Kevin Anderson and I, um, put up a joint statement in which we said that, you know, that book stands on its own. It's not, it's not canon. It's an alternate um, Dune universe because it doesn't follow the timelines and all the other things that Frank Herbert had set up. And so uh, another alternate Dune universe is Spice Planet, which is a story that, that Kevin and I wrote and it's in The Road to Dune. It's interesting that <clears throat> Frank Herbert actually had a, uh, a, a progression in his, in his thoughts as to how he got to Dune. He started out as a magazine article, 
in which he was investigating the dunes in, in Florence, Oregon, um, how they were moving across the highway and how these experts came in from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to plant um, grasses on the slip faces of the dunes to keep them from going over the highway. Well, he went in there as a reporter to do a story, and he did all kinds of photographs and wrote this up, and he sent it into his agent, and his agent said, um, and all it was is it was a magazine article, and his agent said there will never be any interest in this subject. And so um, <laughs> that was kind of, kind of an amusing letter, but, but in the context of what the agent was looking at, maybe he 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 had a point. Well, then Frank Herbert went to this concept, uh, Spice Planet, and Kevin and I found the notes. And a lot of the, some of the character names are similar or the same, but they're they're in different, doing different things. And and basically, Spice Planet was a very simple novel about two houses, such as House Harkonnen and House Atreides. They were had different names, and they're competing to see who could produce the most spice from this spice planet and whoever produced the most spice in this competition then was awarded uh, the planet and so it was a it was a good science fiction concept for you know the late 1950s and it it probably would have been published uh, pretty easily if, if he'd completed it but he got dad got very complicated he, it, he set that aside made it much more involved to the point where it was turned down by more than 20 edit, uh, publishers. Um, so um, th- there was a, an interesting evolution. I'm sorry I digressed on your original question. No, it's fine. It was fine. It was fine. Uh, I, I, I mean, I haven't had a chance to read it, so that was interesting to know. It. Yeah. Uh, it's Scott's copy here. We, we, he picked it up after we were talking about it on the show. So Yeah. It is, uh, your, your, your father just has in the forewords, as a first a Dune fan, I give this encyclopedia my delighted approval, although I hold my own counsel on some of the issues still to be explored as the chronicles unfold. So he kind of held this loosely as canon. Mm. It wasn't really canon for Right. Him. And, yeah. and from talking with uh, Dr. McNelly, which we did, um, there is there is a similar concept in one aspect of it. I'll let the fans figure that out. But but there's a similar concept in there to something that that we put in a novel. And as we showed Dr. McNelly, that's actually a Frank Herbert concept that we found in all those mounds and mounds and piles of notes. Huh. Um, so it was an interesting thing that Frank Herbert came up with this particular idea. And it is a little plot point that that is in the house series of books. It's a plot point, and um, it was in his notes in his own handwriting. And uh, and McNelly's uh, people also, I think, came up with a similar idea. But it's it, you're working off the same database. Right. So McNelly and his uh, professors um, were thinking about the Dune universe, just as Kevin and I were, hmm. and. Um, we we were all thinking in, in similar terms, at least on that one point. And then there's many many digressions. There's timelines, and people have said, "What is this timeline?" And they'll send me timelines from the Dune Encyclopedia. I said, "Well, I don't know. I don't know anything about that." Oh man! But it's fun. It, it's fun that somebody it's was fun. able to explore that. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and, and a lot of people like to do that. Yeah. Uh, along those lines, something that we we wished for, and and you kind of hinted that you may have done on your own, is uh, actual written co- uh, collections of like the stories of Princess Irulan or um, 
or maybe the uh, Orange Catholic Bible, like put together that you're pulling your your quotes for at the beginning of the chapters. Is- yeah, we would love to see an Orange Catholic Bible sometime, Brian. I'm just saying. I'm- <laughs> well, I, I yeah, I don't want to be a guru either. But, uh, yeah, you know, Dad said in an appendix to Dune that um, one of the things that, that they were trying to figure out, at, I think, at the Commission of Ecumenical Translators, was to remove the view that. That any one religion had the had the one answer. So um, he was very much, um, and and you'll see he's got Buddhist, Islamic, Zen, Sufi. He's combining religions. Oh so yeah. <laughs> he was thinking, you know, long before I was on along the same lines that that there are parallels and, and similarities in in these religions, and and he saw a far future. Um, in fact, he saw thousands of years in the future when the Butlerian Jihad occurs, <laughs> when. <laughs> when there's a merger of, of religions. And so um, I haven't looked at the actual timeline recently, but I believe the Butlerian Jihad is 13,000 years in our future, and then Dune is another, I think, another 10,000. So it's like 23,000. Uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to quote something wrong here. <laughs> done the timeline, but we're talking thousands of years in the future in which the religions have merged, and and Dad would say things to me in the future that you you can have someone with a, a Japanese background with an Irish name, and uh, so he'd like to do things like that, just to kind of mix things up and make people think. Hmm. He, he liked to make people think. He liked to. He was an investigative reporter when he when he worked for newspapers at times, and Dad said he liked to turn over rocks and see what scurries out, and he was definitely a futurist. Um, he wasn't. He, he said that he wasn't necessarily predicting the future. He was talking about a possible future, right. and uh, some of his predictions are pretty eerie about uh, thinking machines possibly controlling us, um, and and some other. I mean, he did that way before ter- the Terminator. I mean, Dad came up with that in the early 1960s. So. Um, and, and this whole business of uh, scarcity of resources, uh, oil and water—that um, was that was Frank Herbert too. Yeah. And in fact, even before Dune, Dune was Dad's second novel. Uh, the first novel was uh, *The Dragon in the Sea*. In *The Dragon in the Sea*, Frank Herbert invented containerized shipping. Uh, he did it in terms of of an under underwater uh, military uh, tugboat, a huge tugboat, pulling a container of oil underwater. But some of the developers of containerized shipping later said that they were inspired by his novel. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> he was thinking about a lot of big things, and, and a lot of the things that he talked about came true. Yeah. Wow. When you think of this, 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 even this idea of all the surveillance we have and how, how everything's micromanaged and computers are used to do everything, it's very, very close to, and you think of the Butlerian Jihad, you, you think of a lot of stuff like that. So. Yeah, I, I see people walking around looking, you know, looking at their, at their smartphones in their hand, um, and it just seems like they're disconnected. Um, and they're always looking at those in restaurants or wherever they are. It seems like they're disconnected from the physical reality of where they are. Um, I, and I know it's important. Uh, I, my wife keeps and keeps up with our, our kids and our grandkids and everything through that because, through the, her smartphone because 
you can't even call some of these people. You have to text them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand that it's it's something we have to use now, but it does seem like um, that we're disconnected at times, and and I think we're addicted to these computers and and the things that we find on the internet that we can't get away from. Yeah. No. Uh, there's definitely truth to that. Well, uh, one more question before we get into uh, some of uh, talking about oceans and your newest novel. David Forbes, uh, one of our listeners, wrote in and said, Hi, all. I've read all and enjoyed all the Dune series of books. The Dune 30,000-plus-year 30, mega drama is perfect for the Hollywood sequel and prequel movie franchise things. Are there any rumors or plans to bring the entire Dune drama to the big screen? So uh, we had this question generally for us. We thought you might be better suited to answer this than we could. So any any plans? We've had you know the miniseries. We had the two miniseries that Sci Fi put out. We'd had the David Lynch and uh, and uh, any other plans to bring this to the big screen, small screen in the future? Well, it, it's been an interesting um, saga. I, I know that's part of your name. But, um, <laughs> back in the early nine, back in the early 1970s, um, it was Arthur P. Jacobs who had the rights to Dune, um, and he had hired David Lean to be the director, who did Lawrence Arabia. Um, Arthur P. Jacobs uh, died, uh, and his um, uh, his company, Apjack Entertainment, did not continue with it. And then later, uh, there was a uh, a French consortium that was involved. Uh, with uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, um, and he had uh, they, they put a lot of money into their effort, and it ultimately uh, didn't didn't go forward either. And so then <clears throat> Dino De Laurentiis came along in 1976, <clears throat> purchased the rights to Dune, and then he didn't do anything with them. And so by 1979, uh, Dino De Laurentiis came back to Dad, and, um, and there's all these troubles uh, with such a huge novel of, of getting figuring out how to how to tell that story so Dino De Laurentiis couldn't do it the, the two people before him had 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 various problems doing it and so Laurentiis came back again and, and this time he had Ridley Scott on board and uh, Ridley Scott ultimately did not write the screenplay <clears throat> he went on to do other things but um, Dino De Laurentiis did stick with it and he got David Lynch involved and David Lynch uh, was was an artist at one time, and and so Dad liked the the visual, some of the visual effects, the artistic elements that that David Lynch had put into it. When Dad saw five hours of outtakes in Mexico City where they filmed it, and, he, and Dad came back saying it's a visual feast. Well, there's things about the Lynch version that he disputed, such as uh, uh, the ending where Paul makes rain, um, the characterization of the Baron Harkonnen, um, seemed a little over the top. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. but there's some really great things in that movie. I mean, uh, Jose Ferrer and Linda Hunt are both Academy Award winners from prior movies, and the cast, oh, what a cast. Um, there's some, some dark David Lynch elements to it, um, but it's, it's different. Um, and so a lot of fans hated it, but it, it also became a very popular uh, video rental, um, one of the top-selling video rentals over the years. And so there's, there's a lot of fans that love it. I, I watch it. Kevin watches it. And, and we tend to forgive um, the things that are, 
that David Lynch made up. He he did make some things up that, that are in there that didn't <laughs> didn't quite follow the plot. But but it still feels like Dune. It's really cool when Paul gets on the worm and uh, and just a lot of uh, the character interactions are really well done. It's it's just too bad that it <clears throat> uh, didn't quite fulfill what. Uh, um, the most uh, avid Frank Herbert fans wanted to see what they'd visualized was not that, although there's a lot of people that, that like it. Um, and then, so then we get to the two TV series, um, Frank Herbert's Dune, I think it was the year 2000, and then Frank Herbert's Children of Dune in 2003, and that one included uh, Dune Messiah. Well, for for the budget they were working with, um, they followed the plot pretty well, Um there's, you know, if they'd had a bigger budget, they they could have done more. But um, I I like the way they they followed the plot. So here you got this David Lynch version earlier, that's this huge swashbuckling thing, and then you have uh, the two TV series that were more careful with the plot. I think the part for Susan Sarandon um, in the second uh, miniseries was enlarged somewhat, um, but that's okay. We all like Susan Sarandon, and then we had <laughs> William William Hurt in the first one. So, oh come on. Um, and, and so they were able to, to bring in a couple of really big stars um, and some people that w- would later become stars. So, um, But what, what if the big swashbuckling effect and, and actually following the plot and maybe bring in somebody like, you know, the David Lean thought of, of, of giving it the big Lawrence Arabia look, um, what if all that were combined and done in a new movie? And so I think with a lot of that in mind, um, we actually optioned it to Paramount, and that went on for from about 2006 to 2011. And finally, Paramount did not renew their option uh, in March of 2011. So since then, um, we've had a lot of discussions about uh, where we should go with with this huge universe. Um, yeah, one one of the ideas is is it should be, you know, a, a big scale. Uh, miniseries. There, there should also be companion movies, um, sort of the, the way Star Trek did it. Um, so there's, it, it's just a lot of things are going to go into this in order to to do it right. Um, and and it's just been this huge, long progression, this big saga of of developing Dune um, since the early 1970s when Arthur P. Jacobs purchased the rights. Well. Uh, but Dune today is still popular. It's it's a 50-year-old novel, and it's still selling very well. It's being translated all over the world. So um, something should be done, you know, with with this universe. And um, um, I'm definitely involved in in all the discussions on it. I ju- I just can't, you know, give any details at this point. We don't have anything <laughs> worked out. Yeah, we don't have anything worked out. Yeah. Would, would you? No. Would you want to, hypothetically, if this were to become a, a series, a TV series or something, would you want to start with Dune or would you want to start with maybe the prequels or something and kind of work through things in a more chronological order? Well, that's the nice thing. Um, we have a, we actually have, I think, three good starting points. Um, Dune is probably the best, but you could also start with House of Trades, um and then go straight into Dune. But you could also go back to the Butler and Jihad and just chronologically go, go through the whole thing. Um, so there, there's three different ways to do it. Um, it, it could be done with um, maybe some of these would be movies and other parts of it, some of the prequels and things I've written with Kevin, 
um, could be more of a TV part of it. So there's a way of dovetailing movies and a TV series, um, you know, big theatrical release movies, um, and, and doing it with, with television. Um, it's just that uh, it's so complicated. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of other elements, not not just those two elements. There's a lot more elements. There's um, the gaming aspects and, and other things, too, that need to be coordinated. Hmm. Oh, that's true. That's true. And, and I'm also I'm also writing Dune books, and I'm writing my own solo novels. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, a lot on my mind. Yeah, you're not busy at all. I think the big <laughs> question on everyone's mind is, when are you going to write the great novel podcast of Dune? About uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're brainstorming it right now. Right, 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 right. Well, let's let's move into uh, some of your uh, your most recent novels. Uh, I think, especially, uh, do you want to start with Ocean and then move into Little Green Book of Chairman Rama? Rama, yeah, yeah. Um, I've written a lot of novels with um, an, an environmental uh, aspect to them. And um, my wife came back from Hawaii one time, and she gave me this, I thought it was a huge idea for for a story. And she said, Brian, what if, you know, look how people are treating the oceans and throwing the sewage um, in in the water and the garbage and the floating plastics, and it's just, and all the creatures are dying, and um, the coral and, and all the other problems. And, and she said, the ocean produces almost half of the oxygen that we have on this planet, and look what we're doing. Look what we're doing to it. We're we're creating dead zones. Uh, I mean, the sewage will ultimately create dead zones, and there's there's hundreds, maybe thousands of zones all over the planet. So she's given me all these elements, and so I thought, well, if we're going to declaring war, um, I mean, against our civilization and having it come from the ocean, that's a pretty cool idea. So I immediately thought of, well, tidal waves. They can come up with some way to slam tidal waves into us and get our attention and, you know, push our Navy ships out of the way and uh, slam it into the coast of California and knock out, you know, whatever's going on there and get get our attention. Um, but then I also realized that, you know, the water, it doesn't just have sharks and barracudas and stingrays in it. There's a lot more in there that's really, really dangerous. Um, and so I came up with like 50 really, really dangerous creatures, and there's a lot more than that. And so you'll see in that novel, uh, they are used in, in a military way. Uh, they, there's a, uh, an officer corps that is a, a group of, of humans that, uh, and through fantastic uh, ways, some of these humans become hybrids. So, for example, each group, each of these humans, which is the officer corps, each of them has a specialty. Some will lead the dolphins and the others, the barracudas and, and the crabs. And you definitely don't want two million crabs going all over a Navy ship. Um, I can tell you who's going to win that one. Uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, there's going to be guys going overboard on that one. Um, so, but there's somebody in the officer corps that are either look like they're human, but they may not be completely human internally. <clears throat> and some of them actually metamorphose. <clears throat> So that, that if the one leading the barracuda looks part barracuda and part human. Um, and so there's all these really cool-looking hybrids. And these are the sea warriors, and this is the officer corps, and they're the environmental activists, and there's 200 of them. And they lead this big military attack of these really dangerous sea creatures, poisonous sea snakes and, and creatures that throw barbs and um, poison and... Um, 
and, and do all kinds. And, and, and there's actually creatures from the depths of the ocean uh, that come back from it. Uh, they were thought to be extinct, and they come back. So, yeah, why not bring them back, too? So we've got a 50-foot-long crocodile that was thought to be extinct but really wasn't. And that's based on, on fact. There's a, a fish, and I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, called the coelus and something like that. It was found in 1938. It was thought to be extinct. It really wasn't. A fisherman brought it up. So I got to thinking, well, why not have some of these creatures come back and join the military force? And one of them is a plesiosaur, which is a, a long-necked Loch Ness monster type thing that swam in the ocean millions of years ago. Well, that that comes back too. Um, we've got the 50-foot-long shark. We've got these some crocodiles that that have these. Um, Jaws where they'll they'll clamp down like a pit bull. I mean, there's some. These are real creatures. There's real science in this book, and they're all used in a military way. And one of our officers in the Sea Warriors uh, can create tidal waves, and she stands on top of a tidal wave, and she'll slam the tidal wave uh, against an enemy. So that um, that's a big progressive uh, novel. It's it's definitely far left. Um, and then the Little Green Book, which came out in July, uh, postulates that, see, I went to Cal Berkeley during um, a lot of upheaval there, and it postulates that the Berkeley-type radicals take over North and South America, um, and they create a green utopia, and um, they have a violent uh, element in, in their military force, which are anarchists. Uh, the anarchists usually don't like to follow any kind of government authority, but they go along with these Berkeley radical types uh, for a time in order to take over, to help take over the governments of, of North and South America, and they also have a really cool science fiction weapon that's a devastating weapon um, that uh, can, it, it's like a death ray that basically just stops the, the American army and everything else, but it's also something that's used later when the um, rabbit ecologists take over, they use this um, this black cannon that fires uh, this death ray type thing. They use it to destroy old factories and all these old ugly environmental blights that are all over the two continents. They destroy them, and then they have a process that's called green farming in which it's all restored to nature. And so people, since people cause so much trouble, in this utopia, the people are all forced onto reservations for humans, um, yeah. and they're not allowed to go out into those woods anymore. Uh, they have to stay where they're going to be good. But you're starting to see some elements of a, of a green police state, um, and so there's an eco-police, um, and they will have shiny green helmets, and they have jackboots, um, and it's it's basically becomes a... Even though it's set up in an idealistic way, and my hero is Chairman Rama, and he's he's very progressive and far left, there are things that go wrong. In order to make his green utopia work for the sake of the planet, getting the humans in order, he has to put them on the reservations for humans. And if they violate the the rules, the eco police take them out and recycle them. Um, you know, which is not good. You don't want to be recycled. Um, <laughs> And they go out on death trains and, and actually, you know, melt them back into the ground. So there's all kinds of historical elements in there from, from real fascist states. But one thing I noticed is that um, a lot of the progressives like to call uh, right-wingers fascists, 
And I got to thinking, well, what if, what if the green uh, movement were actually a religion? It's been discussed that it's a religion. And, and what if, what if the end of that, um, what if their goal, this altruistic, idealistic goal of saving this planet, what if the only way to do that is to control people in a police state? Um, so I'm talking about all kinds of, of things on both sides of that issue. You know, what rights do we as human animals have? Um, and in this utopia, the corporations have been wiped out and they've been sent, you know, sent fleeing because of all the bad things they did. And I, I, I can see what these corporations have done. You can't even call a large corporation without going into voicemail jail. Um, and basically these corporations have treated us, all, all of us on, on this connection and all the people listening, have treated us as, as if we were a third world nation. And they have, they have colonized us. They're, they're multinational. They're not in any one country. And basically instead of having the, the British Empire go into Africa or the French Empire or the Germans or any of the others go into these South America, Africa, anywhere else and plunder the resources. Basically, I saw it <clears throat> that these corporations are basically plundering us and, and they're sucking our, our energies, our life energies out of us like in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but it, it, but I, I, I saw it. I, I'm, I've been seeing it on both sides of it. And I also see people with property rights that have been, been pretty much run over in, in, by environmentalists in their zeal. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, do these people that own these properties, that purchase them under one set of rules, don't they have a right to complain if that set of rules about their property changes? Or for the good of the country, for the good of the world, should we ignore those kinds of property rights and move forward with, with a utopian state? Um, so it's a utopia, dystopia uh, concept, um, and um, it's quite different from ocean in that ocean doesn't have any other side to it than just the, the bad things humans have, have done to the water and um, the creatures are rising up in this great uh, this great war. And uh, it, Whereas in the, in the Little Green Book of Chairman Rama, although the basis of it is very idealistic, I, I realize that very good concepts. I mean, you take a look at the idealistic original concepts of Marxism and communism and, and you name it. They can be derailed. And if you look in China today, there's an elite living there. You look in Russia, there's an elite living in castles, dash house. In China, the, the, the sons of the rulers are driving around $500,000 cars. So no matter what the idealistic thing that they start with and you know about being equal to all people there's always an elite that forms so i thought well what if that concept were taken over to the green movement and and mm -hmm. there's going to be a power group that's going to form at the top they're going to have privileges um they're going to make the wrong they're going to uh, see green in the wrong way and the green is the money so they're going to find a way to make money it's just human nature that there's going to be an elite group rising even in, a, in an idealistic green movement. So I have Chairman Rama creating this, this wonderful utopia, and he sees this power structure forming below him, but he has to kind of put up with it for the sake of his, of his bigger vision. So 
you can see how all these historical elements and, and the social elements kind of came into play on the Little Green Book. I uh, I was a sociology major at, uh, at Berkeley, so I, I like to think of that as the psychology of societies. Um, and I, I like to see what makes big social movements happen. And so I extrapolated, you know, Berkeley into a big science fiction epic. Huh. Awesome. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. What's uh, the reception been like? Um, I got a, a really good review from Publishers Weekly, and um, I think it's too early to, to tell on, on sales, but um, um, it's not going to be a big bestseller like a, like a Dune series novel, but maybe it'll have legs. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you have a, you have another book that's coming out here in the, in the upcoming weeks. It's the Hell, it's Hellhole Inferno, the third book in the Hellhole trilogy, and you're doing that with uh, Kevin G. Anderson. Can you tell us a little bit about the series and a little bit about the third book that's coming out? Yeah, um, and that's my fourth big novel since November, by the way. We all have <laughs> wow. Dune in, in March. <laughs> this happens that they're all bunched up. Um the concept for, for Hellhole is that um, there's this advanced, uh, like a monarchy that, that rules uh, 20 planets in the future, and there is a, um, a, a group in the royal families that rises up against the monarchy. Um, this happens years ago, and one of the, and the leader of that rebellion is then exiled, sort of like a Napoleon figure. He's exiled way into outer space onto one of 54 planets that have been newly discovered in the deep zone. So he's kind of a Napoleon character, and he's exiled to this planet where the, the, the royals think that he's going to die for political reasons. They didn't just execute him. They sent him to this horrible planet called Hellhole, <laughs> and it's like the worst place you could possibly imagine. It's, um, it's a planet that was hit by an asteroid 500 years ago, and that wiped out all life forms, uh, you know, taller than your ankle, um, and um, just left this blasted landscape with this huge, you know, crater site. And um, so our character, our Napoleon character, who is living here on that planet, he he then develops. Uh, there's other exiles with them, sort of like Australia with a prison colony. There's all these other malcontents that are sent to this planet. So, um, but what a great place to train an army and and to, uh, to to actually become strong. So, here comes another rebellion, and while this second rebellion is forming, and the second rebellion is forming um, throughout the whole, all the 54 planets in the deep zone, and there's a technology of connecting all these planets um, through for rapid space travel. We call it stringline travel. So there are all 54 of these planets are connected, and all of the 20 original royal planets are also connected through stringline travel. It's instantaneous, nearly instantaneous travel, very fast. Um, and then the 20 original planets are also connected to the deep zone. So in this rebellion, there's all kinds of, of, of things that are happening, including maybe cutting off this line or that stringline or that line. But while this rebellion is forming on Hellhole, um, we we begin to learn that maybe the asteroid that hit Hellhole 500 years ago was not an accident, and there was an alien race that lived there. And when they went to ground, they they went for cover when the asteroid came in, and so many of of them survived by going into this. Um, we call it slick water. It's a a black 
sentient goo that has their uh, their essence in it, their their sentience is in it. Their bodies were destroyed, but their but their their souls, if if you will, are still in this in this stuff. And so, humans on on the planet Hellhole are naturally gonna gonna fall in this stuff by accident. <laughs> and so, when the first one falls in, he comes out with an alien personality that's sharing his his body. And um, these aliens, as it turns out, and there's more, and, and so then, then there's a, a spring that's developed like a spa where people come in from all over and they want to get the alien personalities and they're not sure what they're going to get, but, you know, they're, they're going to get something and it's going to be exciting. And um, it turns out that these aliens, when they get together, uh, they have certain powers. Um, and we start to figure out what it was that caused the original uh 500-year-old asteroid hit that was not an accident. So it, it's an unfolding mystery. And by the time we get to book three, which is uh, coming out August 12th, Hellhole Inferno, um, the answers will, will be in there as, as to what that was um, that caused that and who these aliens really are. But these aliens also uh, become an ally of our Napoleon character. So when he when he's going back against... Uh, the monarchy group, um, he has some really powerful allies now. So um, he just might win this time. But <laughs> there, there's somebody that doesn't like these aliens out there, too. Um, and and we'll, we'll reveal who that is in, in the book. Wow. And so we'll get the thrilling conclusion to this trilogy, right? Absolutely. It's not <laughs> a straight line story and, you know, lots of, lots of gray area characters. That is a lot of writing to do. So, like, to have all books come out so close together. <laughs> oh man, I can't well, believe they, they just bunched up. I actually wrote them over a period of several years, um, uh, and, two, and two of them were, were you can call them half books. But each of the books I write with Kevin are big doorstopper books. So, uh, right. <laughs> what would be your ideal pre-existing series? to write in that you've never written in before? Like, if you had an opportunity to write in any existing fictional universe, where would you want to go? I don't think I, don't, I, don't think I would. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, All right. Honestly, I, I don't think I would. I, I, I think when, when Frank Herbert died, I had a legacy and I had a responsibility, I think. But um, I, I, I think I'd rather create new stories um, other than, you know, doing the Dune stories. I'd... Uh, I'm not sure that I could step into another universe. I'm just curious. When the day is done and it's time to relax, what kind of science fiction do you enjoy? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I either mentioned to you off the air or early on in this conversation that I, I didn't read science fiction. Um, I, I listened to my dad uh, telling the stories, and when I first tr tried to read to write science fiction, um, I was original. I mean, my, my ideas were all really original, but that's because I didn't read in in the genre. Um, and it just happened that I, I stumbled and did some ideas that had already been done. But um, I still don't read a lot of science fiction. Um, I've got a huge library of nonfiction books. Um, I mean, you name it. I've, I've from history and 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 weapons and and strange Machiavellian characters and um, you know Mussolini. Uh, biographies and and you name it. I, I I like biographies that take me into history. They they tell me about particular people, but I really don't don't read science fiction very much. I've 
I've read some of Kevin's um, uh, books, and I, I like them very much. Um, but I mostly read uh, nonfiction in order to uh, to provide the details that, that I want for my story. So for, for Ocean, for example, I read probably 50 books uh, about the ocean. Wow. No. Yeah. It makes sense. It's kind of a part of your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I enjoy it. Um, I recently read a biography of Machiavelli, um, and he, even though he had dark theories about governments and, and why, why princes make decisions, he wasn't that bad a guy himself. And so he's kind of been uh, uh, given a, a bad ride by history. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you spending a little over an hour, that maybe an hour, closer to an hour and a half now that we spent just chatting about Dune, chatting, chatting about that universe, and also about your newer works. If people want to find out more about you or want to find out where they can get a hold of some of the books that we've talked about, where's the best place to send them? Um, I have a, a new website, and I, when I say new, I mean new. Well, our existing website um, of our family is uh, .com. Um We also have a Facebook page. I, I can't give you the exact reference. Um, we have a, a Twitter uh, account for the family, which is um, at Dune Novel. But in the last two weeks, um, I've got a brand new website, and it's uh, Um I have a uh, new Facebook page, which is also Brian Herbert Novels. Um, and then um, I have a, a Twitter site, which is about two months old, and um, I didn't set any of these up. I've got somebody helping me do it. And when this lady went in to get a Twitter name for me, she couldn't get my name. So um, it was taken. So, <laughs> uh, it, 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 you know, you can come up with variations with underlines and this and that. I didn't do it. So she went in and, and just created a temporary name. And the temporary name I've had for a couple of months now is at Dune Author. Um, it, it has a nice uh, aspect to it in that it brings in the Dune fans. Um, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll just remain at Dune Author. But I do write more than Dune, but I'm I'm happy to, to, to be at Dune Author for a while here, at least until <laughs> my own name becomes available. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh that, 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 that happens. And if, if pe- <laughs> and if people want to, uh, I guess, buy any of the books, they can go to these two websites and, and find most of them. Yeah, the, the, the Little Green Book of Chairman Rama is from a, a big publisher. It's the biggest science fiction publisher, which is Tor, um, St. Martin's Press, Tor. Um, so that's in bookstores, and by the way, it's in green ink. It's all printed in green ink. Oh, uh, and actually, that's pretty easy to read. And there was a, a movement like 40 years ago uh, for for easy reading books, and and green, dark green, was discovered to be a nice color to read. So, so at least for now, maybe the first edition will be green, maybe others will be black, but. For now, it's in it's in green ink, so I think that's pretty cool. That is then, cool. <laughs> <laughs> then the book Ocean is available um, only on the internet right now. Um, you can get it as a trade paperback. I think it's nineteen ninety nine uh, from Wordfire Press. Um, it, it's available at Amazon dot com. Um, you'll you'll find it quite easily. You can also get it as Ocean as an ebook. Um, and you can buy it in, in three parts if you want, even. But I, w- I would suggest the Ocean Omnibus, which tells the, tells the whole big story. Um, and then going back to Little Green Book, that is an audio book. Uh, it'll be done by uh, Blackstone Audio. Um, and my reader on it is Scott Brick, who has done uh, a lot of the Dune novels, and he's done a good job on them. So 
so I, I was happy to, to get Scott, who is very talented. Um, so, um, and then and Ocean, maybe we'll have an audio book on that someday too. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I love Scott Brick. <laughs> yeah, I, I, great. I was telling a neighbor um, about Scott that he's read some of the Din books, and she said, "Scott Brick, really?" And she, she said she just about leave her husband for Scott Brick. I mean, <laughs> and I was, wow, this guy's a rock star. So, <laughs> so yeah, I was, and he's very nice, nice too. Um, yeah, I've, yeah. I've met him several times. He's a great guy. He's been up here to Seattle. Wait, um, be- just, can't be a, a, a better person than Scott. <laughs> well, be, I, I began uh, when we started the Dune Saga podcast because of my uh, commute time, and I do a lot of running, uh, like physically running. Uh, I'm a runner, it, too. Yeah, so this has been a – Dune accompanies me many times, and it's the voice of Scott Brick, who's the voice of Dune for me when I, uh, when I do this. And so when I got to the uh, drama to say – I guess the, the readers that read Dune – he was one of them, but then there were a bunch of others. I'm like, oh, this is a shift for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I but I do. I his, his voice. He just has a, a great reading voice, and for he he's, he voices the characters in such a good way. So <laughs> he does, and, and 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 for every book that he that he does, he's done the Hellhole series. He's done most of our Dune prequels, um, and he's doing a lot of Frank Herbert's backlist. For every book before he actually records it, he calls me, and we go over the pronunciations. So. You may have noticed earlier that I said Harkonnen and not Harkonnen. Um, in in the Lynch movie, they say Harkonnen. Um, but Dad, when I actually went back and listened to the Cadman records where Dad did recordings, reading from his own books, he said Harkonnen. So there's a few things like that that, that I can tell Scott. And I remember Dad, for example, Benny Gesserit. Uh, Dad said to me, if you want to think of how to say Benny Gesserit, the sisterhood, you, you just think of female Jesuits. And so, oh. I, so I could pass little things like that on, on to Scott. And, and Scott can do, I mean, all kinds of accents. I mean, it, it's, very, it's very amusing when I'm talking to him. Sometimes he can just go into all these dialects. He's, he's really got a good ear. And, yeah. and to do what he does, I mean, he could be a musician with an ear like that. Yeah. Well, I know that that's, that's where I get most of my pronunciations. So when I see it on paper, sometimes I can't make the jump because I'm listening to it and I'm not really seeing how it's written. So mm-hmm. <laughs> It's kind of funny because we, we cover the whole gamut here. I prefer the paper. Scott listens and Jim reads the ebooks. So, so until we're hitting all the like sign language or something, we've got it all covered. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a place for Kindle and all that if you're if you're traveling. I mean, you don't yeah. want to carry a big big pile of books. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm kind of an opportunist right now. I'm going to sales. I'm picking up beautiful fifty dollar hardcover books for fifty cents a dollar because people are getting rid of them in droves, and so I'm out there just piling them up. I'm going to have to put up a new building for all my books. <laughs> collapse my house. <laughs> I, I, well, I have a, a, a one small question you, you may or may not have an answer to, but I've been recently upgrading my Dune collection to hardcover, and mm-hmm. I've been trying to buy them relatively new. And uh, when I got to Children of Dune, is there a reason why that book is like $250? <laughs> wow. It, is that the original or is that the reprint? That's the the 2008 reprint. It's Because really? all, all the other ones are, you know, like $20 or below, and then you get to... And Barnes and Noble and Amazon, like it's two hundred fifty dollars, and I was like, I don't understand. It's that's crazy. How many how many copies are there in that range, um, or is it just an anomaly? I don't. Well, I mean, I I haven't found it any place in person, but uh, looking on eBay and Amazon and 
uh, Barnes and Noble. Are you looking it up now, Scott? I am just looking at the, the paperback. Sometimes you'll see an outlier that they may not actually get that price. Mm. Yeah, it's well, it's um, it's uh, they don't have it on the hard Am- cover. They don't have it on Amazon. But it's a hardcover. Yeah. No more. Okay. Yeah. This was like a couple months ago. I was looking for it, and I was like. <sighs> This is crazy. Yeah, well, as, as far as I know, they printed around the same amount of all of them. Now, these are the books that have my um, afterword or introduction introduction in them. Yeah. Um, so the 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 new version of the the, the the most recent edition of Dune has an afterword that I wrote, oh. and then the the five sequels that Frank Herbert wrote, all in hardcover, republished, all have an introduction that I wrote in them, and and they all go into aspects. That that I learned from writing Dreamer of Dune, so they're biographical uh, information in each of those six books. Wow, wow! Yeah, no, no, you're right. Um, I just I found that the hardcover is two hundred thirty one dollars and twelve cents. Where's that? <laughs> it's an it's an Amazon, and then used you can get it for sixty six dollars, and the collectibles eighty dollars. Wow! So, wow! So I don't know. Wow. Yeah, well, so. you know, it, it might be. Now I I did sign some of the. Um, uh, introductions. Yeah, maybe. Does it have a signed introduction? It doesn't say that. Uh, Probably not. Know, yeah, so I don't. Yeah, it doesn't say. It. But all the other ones are, you know, around regular price. Uh, yeah. it's just it was just crazy anomaly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I have I have no I have no idea. I'm, I just don't know that. That <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, was kind of funny because he's kind of like I'm not paying two hundred fifty dollars for this book. <laughs> so, well, you mentioned the Dune Encyclopedia. I think that's pretty valuable too, isn't it, on the market? Yeah, yeah there is. But bucks I th- for a tattered paperback, I heard. Yeah, I picked that up for about twenty bucks on eBay. Though I can't believe that he found it for that cheap, and it's a nice like the spine has no creases in it or at all. Yeah. It, it's pretty well, impressive. Yeah, so. Now, now for a while, um, maybe well, it has to be true now too. I think I think Dune House of Trade is uh, as a hardcover has some value. Um, oh, really? Yeah, um, they didn't. They never remaindered it. Um, but um, I'm not sure what it would show on on eBay. But Kevin and I were not offered it as a remainder for you know something went wrong and in in, you're supposed to give it to the authors uh, at a discount at the end. But either, either we didn't get the message or it was never sent. So um, so there's, huh. there's not that many copies of of a tradies I, I think that we've actually signed. So I thought it, it did have a it had a value of 250 for a while. I don't know if it does anymore. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know either. Wow. But well, anyways, now, now, now you want to talk value? I mean, the, the original Dune only 2200 printed. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think even an unsigned one is worth eight or ten thousand, and maybe a signed one. Wow. Twenty-five thousand. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and and since we're on that subject, uh, I loaned my first edition of Dune. Uh, that Dad gave me, and it said to number one son, signed Frank Herbert. I loaned that to a friend of mine when I was in my twenties, and I never got it back. Oh. <laughs> so it, it could potentially be circulating somewhere out there. <laughs> well, if, if if it turns up, guys, could you could you let me know where it is? I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I I don't fly. I'm known for not getting an airplane. But to, to, if my Dune book is somewhere out there, I'll get on a plane and I'll go get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we come across it, we'll definitely we will let you know. definitely let you know. That. <laughs> oh, but that's <laughs> that's that's kind of a uh, that's man, that's that's sad though. So yeah. nah. well, he, he dad, dad didn't know about it, and so Dad gave me a you know book club edition, which is not you know I mean it's it's not the original, but he gave me a book club edition, and he signed it the number one son. So I I do have that. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm so, not totally destitute on that. <laughs> on that I, I sure would like to see get that original back. So Dune House of Trades, the Turtleback October 1st, 2000 edition, hardcover, $900. Wow. So nine, 900 for the – they call it a Turtleback? Well, it, it, it has – there are a couple hardcover editions. There's a hardcover import. There's the school and library binding, the hardcover import, library binding. Yeah, I guess it's a hardcover edition. The first is just eight nine hundred dollars. Wow. Okay, so, that's even more than I thought then. Yeah. Wow. So wow. So if you come across that in the book sale, you got I know. it. I have you a hardcover it. version. I'm gonna go home and check <laughs> check it out. You, have it in the, <laughs> you in might the, be sitting on plastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shrink wrapping. Silverfish out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, well, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, maybe when we get to uh, the newer books, and you've, you're just coming out with uh, uh, what Brian, the, the newest one, <laughs> um, the, the third one. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> oh, the Hellhole Inferno. No, no, um, not that one. Navigators. Navigators yeah. Maybe we can talk to you again then if you're if you're well, up for it. Really? Um, yeah, but maybe we can make a, reg- a regular get together here. Um, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. That'd be nice. Yeah, well, I'd love to. Again, thank you very much, and and I guess we have more great conversations to look forward to. Yep, we'll, well thank you. I, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, look forward to talking with you again. So for the Dune Saga podcast, and a special thanks to Brian Herbert for joining us. I'm David Moulton, and I'm Scott Hertzog, and I'm Jim Arrowwood, and may Shai Halud clear the path before you. <laughs> <laughs>